PowerPoint here to hopefully help us follow and keep track of where we are at this morning. And there are note sheets there if you'd like to take notes. Um, we will look at a primarily Genesis 1 through 3 this morning, but there will be a number of other scripture references that you're welcome to turn to if you would like. Uh, we will move through some of them fairly quickly, and for that reason I've put them up on the screen, uh, some of them this morning, so that perhaps we can read them and get a whole body of them together and put them together. Uh, we might understand scriptures together. So again, you're welcome to turn to some of these others, but if it's more convenient, efficient for you, though I do like to encourage people to look at their Bibles, in this case, perhaps uh, PowerPoint might help us to find that. We've looked at God. Who is God? He is Creator. He is the eternal creator by whom this world came into being. He is good. He is just. He is sovereign. And that creates some tension between God and this world. Mankind has sinned. We'll look at that today. Because of his sin, how can a good God be just towards sinners and yet also be good to them? How can a just God pour out blessing upon sinners who deserve his wrath and curse and still remain just? How can God be simultaneously good and just and remain in fellowship with the sinful world? And he cannot. That's what we've seen. Our sin has separated us from a God who is good and just. And we saw last week that God's work to reunite the world to himself through Christ, to create a body for his Son that exists in union with Christ, union with the Father, that is God's great goal. And he's doing all of this to put his own glory on display. So what God is doing in the church is really the main thing that he's doing today. So we've looked at God. Now we need to look at man. Next week we will look at Christ and the following week we'll look at our response to Christ and how it is that our faith and repentance unites us to Christ. And then beyond that we will look at the church. How is it that in uniting us to Christ God creates a church? What is a church? Um, how is it that churches come together? What do they exist for? Uh, what are our responsibilities to one another in the church? How does Christ minister to his body? So that's the direction that we're headed for the next few weeks. But this morning we will look at what is man. Man in God's world. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. He's created in the image of God on that sixth day in a way that is unlike God's creation of anything else in this world. God actually gets down into the dirt to form the man from the dust of the ground. He breathes into the man his own life, the breath of God, and man becomes a living being. So what is man? And there's two points this morning that we'll look at. The first of them is this. As we look into the scriptures at Genesis 1, we find out that man is a creature of God's making. Man does not exist because of an evolutionary process. Man is not eternal. Man came into being because of God's work of creation. And there are several things that the book of Genesis gives to us about man that we need to understand as we move forward if we are to really grasp what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And the first thing that we find is in Genesis 1 verse 27. We find the pattern after which God created man. And that pattern is this. God created man in his image as male and female. 
that's your first subheading there. God created man in his image as male and female. And let's read Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Almost a repetition of exactly what was just stated. And then once again, male and female, he created them. The way this verse is structured, God is trying to make a point to us. And that point is this. The first phrase of the verse reads, God created man in his own image. The second phrase of the verse is nearly a restatement. It reads, God created them in the image of God, if we rearrange that wording. You can see the parallelism. God creates man in his image. He creates them in the image of God. And finally, a third statement that is also parallel. God created them in male and female. What's the point of putting these things together like this? Well, notice with me that in his own image, in the image of God, and male and female are all parallel statements in the verse. And notice also that man and them and, I'm sorry, this should be actually him. Man and him and them are all parallel statements. So think about what this means. God creates man in his image. He creates him in the image of God. He creates them as male and female. And all of this, the maleness and the femaleness of humanity, has something to do then with the image of God. How does this work? Well, this tells us something about what our God is like. God is a tri-unity. He is one God who exists in three persons. Likewise, man is a di-unity. There are one man, and yet this him is a them. God is one God existing in three persons. Man is one man existing in two persons. And you can look at Genesis chapter 5. And verse 1, and this is not a stretch to understand the verse this way, because Genesis 5.1 says this, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, okay, there we go. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. There's the image of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man. So what is man? Man is a them. It's a male and a female. This is the human race. This is mankind. And so in that way, even the way that God has created man, has demonstrated his own image. And thus, creation, the creation of man, shows harmonious interpersonal relationships. A man and his wife are supposed to get along. Why? Because God and his Son and Spirit get along. And in the interpersonal relationships of harmony, we see something about the Trinity itself. Man exists in equality and personhood. Man and woman created equal in their standing before God. And yet, there are differing roles and authority within the marriage relationship. One is the head. One is the one who submits. And this is the way that it is in the Godhead as well. We read in 1 Corinthians 14 that the, the head of Christ is God. The head of the woman is the man. There is a parallel between the headship and the submission in marriage and the headship and the submission of the Son to the Father, the Spirit to the Father, 
in the Trinity. And so this is what we mean. This is what God is trying to tell us when he says that man is created in his image as male and female. But when God creates man, he creates him in righteousness, holiness, and goodness. You can see this in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, that includes man, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Listen to Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29. See, this alone I have found, said Solomon, that God made man upright, but they, man, mankind, has sought out many schemes of evil. So in the beginning, God creates a man who is righteous, and since death is the penalty for unrighteousness, for sin. In the beginning, there is no death. There is no disease. There is nothing bad. There's only good things in the beginning. And man's relationship with God, then, is entirely good. God is a God who is good. Man is created in goodness, righteousness, and holiness. There's no difference of viewpoint between man and God at this point. They're not pursuing two different goals. There is nothing to separate man and God. Instead, God is righteous and holy and good, and man and God can exist together in a relationship of love and trust. This is how God creates man. And in fact, that is the relationship, uh, that is the reason that God creates mankind. He creates man good just as he himself is in order that they might share a relationship, a fellowship, and harmony. And that's the third thing we need to see about God's creation of man, and that is that God creates man for a relationship with God of love and trust. God creates man for a relationship with himself of love and trust. We see this in Genesis 1, 27 to 30. God creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he creates him. He creates him male and female as he himself is. And God blesses them. He says to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God says, Behold, I have given you, freely given you, every tree, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Here is a great gift God gives to this man, to every beast of the earth to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the ground, everything that has breath, I have given every green plant for food. There's a relationship of harmony. There's a relationship of love. A relationship of trust here. Man looks up to God for his daily food, and God hands it down to man each day as a gift to him. God creates man to enjoy a relationship of love and trust with himself. And we read in these verses that God creates man in his own image so that there might be harmony and peace and concord and fellowship between them. There was a commonality, a fellowship, a friendly association between God and man that exists. It's founded on shared principles, a shared outlook, shared goals, and shared thought patterns. God intends it this way so that this friendly association between God and man can exist. And he intends that man see in himself a creature that God has created for his own sake. 
God who carried in himself the image of God, I'm sorry, man who now carries in himself the image of God is put into a garden to keep the garden. And he's given all of its rich produce as food. And God intends that in man's work to keep the garden day by day, that man himself see God at work to provide for the man's food. Each day God comes down then to walk in the cool of the evening with the man and the relationship with the two is close. God intends that man find everything he needs in God himself. God would be the center of man's world, the supreme object of his worship and love. And in this way, man would fulfill the purpose for which God has created him. And this is the reason that the greatest commandment is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And all of the other commandments hang on that one. This is the central obligation that man has. Third, fourthly, we see that man is accountable to God. There is a shared fellowship, and yet there is also a hierarchy. Man is answerable to God. We see this in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commands the man. One person's giving commands and the other one is receiving. They are not on par with each other. There is a hierarchy. God has every right to command the man and to hold him accountable. You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Man is accountable to God and God has the ability, the authority over man to command him. He also has the authority over man to exact penalty when man disregards God's law. You shall surely die. The life that God has given to man, he will require it from man. If the man chooses, he will go his own way. Now, does anyone in the world today obey this greatest of commandments to love God? Do human beings today submit themselves to God's authority over them? And that's where the second main point of what we need to see about God and man and their relationship comes into play. Not only is man a creature that God has made, he is a rebel today against God's authority. The first thing we need to notice in the scriptures about this is that man has rejected God's authority. You remember several weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 1. God speaks, let there be light. And that's the way it is. Exactly as God says, it comes to pass. The sun was not disobedient to God on the fourth day when God said, let there be great lights in the heavens. The sun said, yes, Lord, and it appeared and began to shine. The first time that God's word is ever rejected in the history of this universe that God has created, I'm not thinking of Satan, but the history of this universe and mankind that God has created, the first time God's word is rejected is in Genesis 3. God possesses authority over man. He commands the man, you shall not eat of the tree. And man decides that he will run the show himself. And the first thing that we see about man's rejection of God's authority is that in his actions, man disobeys God's commands. See this in Genesis 3.3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit 
of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. This is God's command. And what do Adam and Eve do? You shall not eat of the fruit, lest you die. So, verse 6, she took of the fruit and ate, exactly as God had prohibited. And the result was exactly what God said. Human beings have been dying ever since. She gave some to her husband, and he ate also. This point deals with our actions. The actions that we perform day by day as human beings do not align with God's law. We disobey. We transgress. We miss the mark that God has set forth for us. But this disobedience is not accidental. It's not that man just blunders into a failure to obey God's commands. It's not simply that he doesn't know what God requires, and so he accidentally oversteps the boundaries. This disobedience actually reflects something about us. It reveals the state of our hearts. It shows our motivation in this disobedience. And the second thing then that we need to look at is not only does man's rejection of God's authority entail him disobeying God's commandments externally, but it shows something about his motivation, what he loves in his heart. And man's motivation is to actually attack God's authority. Man is not ambivalent. Man is not passive in this. He's not dispassionate. Man actually rejects God's authority because he hates God's authority. There is a desire in man to be out from under God's authority. And this is what we see in Genesis 3 as well. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That sounds strikingly like the words of the serpent, that great angel Lucifer. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like God. Satan in the garden in the form of a serpent tempts the man and the woman to commit the same act of treason against God that he himself did. Satan says, I will be like the Most High. Eve, if you eat the fruit, God knows you too will be like him. And so it's not simply accidental, accidental overstepping of God's boundaries. It is that the heart of rebellion against God that was in Lucifer, that said, I will ascend over God, I will be the authority, that heart exists now in man. He is a rebel against God's authority, and he actually, given the opportunity, will throw off God's rule. He will insist that he be his own autonomous master. The problem then is not simply that we do bad things when God tells us not to. The problem actually is deeper than that. It is that we possess a heart that is rebellious against God in the first place. Now, some might argue that humanity is working to make this world a better place. Haven't we established civilized societies? Don't we curb crime? Don't we have a pretty good world to live in? No one's actually out to throw off God's rule, are they? There's many commendable things we do for our fellow man. Think of all the good things that people do for each other. But that's actually exactly what the problem is. 
We're like a band of sailors aboard a ship. We have imprisoned the captain and the first mate, and we have determined that we will run the ship as we choose. We've set up a society that's decent and charitable toward our fellow man, but we do it all with our own well-being in view. We want to be the center of our world, and it is for our own sakes that we live each day. God has been confined to the brig, and we are content that it should be that way. After all, who really needs God? This is what the scripture says about us. Now, how do we explain the fact that these things are true of every single individual upon this earth? That there is none righteous, not even one. How do we explain the universality of this? Well, man has not only rejected God's authority, but that initial rejection by Adam in the garden, that rejection by God has set man up as a rebel against God by his very nature. Man is not simply a creature who does evil things from time to time. Man is evil at the very core of his being. Evil has gotten inside of us, and like an enzyme, it has transformed us in our very natures from creatures who are created good to harden rebels against God. And this corruption is present in us from the very moment of our conception. It is passed down to us from Adam, from our parents, just as surely as our possession of two arms and a nose and eyes are, though it is not passed down genetically. We have inherited the corruption of our entire nature from Adam. We are sinners not only because we sin, but because we carry in ourselves Adam's very nature of rebellion against God. This is what Psalm 51 says. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's not saying that he was conceived by an act of sin, rape, fornication, adultery. It's not that his mother conceived him through a sinful act. It was that at the point of his conception, he himself was conceived in a state with a nature of sin. He says, I was brought forth in that condition, a condition of being iniquitous. Psalm 58 says the same thing. The wicked are estranged from God from the womb. It's not after they're born that they start doing wicked things and estrange themselves. It is that they come forth from the womb estranged from God. They go astray from birth speaking lies. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says this. We all were by nature children of wrath. Not by action. We're not children of wrath by choice because we have chosen to reject God's authority. We are children of wrath by our very nature. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19 says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts. The problem is not what we do with our hands. The problem is much deeper. It is our hearts. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. 
Now, most people in the world today do not understand this about themselves. And in fact, if you teach them that this is what the scripture says about us, they will push back. Why is that? A teacher from the past, about, 19, about the year 1900, said this. Because man is born a rebel, he is unaware that he is one. His constant assertion of himself, as far as he thinks of that at all, appears to him to be a perfectly normal thing. He is willing to share himself, sometimes even sacrifice himself for a desired end. And we see plenty of that today. People sacrificing themselves for the good of their fellow man. This teacher said he is willing to share himself, sometimes even to sacrifice himself for a desired end, but he is never willing to dethrone himself, to put God back upon the throne. And the scripture teaches this about every part of our nature. Every part of us is broken because of sin. This depravity that we carry within us is total. For example, consider this. Scripture says that our minds, our thought patterns are empty. Ephesians 4.17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility or the emptiness of their minds. There's nothing going on there of substance before God. It is empty. It's dark. The lights are off. The mind is corrupted by sin. The mind is blinded by sin. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. Man is blind. His mind is blind. Titus chapter 1 verse 15. Man's mind is defiled to the pure. I'm sorry, I'm out of order here. Man is ignorant. They are darkened because of the ignorance that is in them. All of these bright intellectual people out there, God says totally ignorant. They do not know God. They are fools. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Man is ignorant of any true wisdom. His understanding is darkened. Scripture says they are darkened in their understanding. So not only is man's mind corrupt and defiled, his understanding of things is corrupt and defiled. It's dark. He is unable to understand the things of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. He does not possess that ability. That lies beyond his ability. They are spiritually discerned. His heart is hard. Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So their mind is corrupt. Their understanding is corrupt. Their heart is corrupt. Their heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Can you trust your heart? What about the mantra today that we ought to follow our hearts and be true to ourselves? Is this not a path to destruction? There's a way that seems right to a man. His heart tells him, this is the way, walk in it. But the end thereof are the ways of death. Our hearts are deceived. Our hearts are full of evil. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 3. There is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. 
Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead, and justly so. Their consciences, man's mind, his understanding, his conscience is defiled, his heart is hard, to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Their consciences do not register offenses against God's moral law accurately. We see this in the legalization of so much that God condemns. Why do their consciences not cry out? Why do they not have some standard in themselves that ought to tell them that's wrong? It is because their consciences are defiled. And Paul tells us in the book of 1 Timothy that their consciences are seared as with a hot iron. And man is unqualified to do any good work. What about his hands? Does man possess in his, in his hands the ability to do some good work? They profess that they know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. And Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, Even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Man's hands, his feet, his mouth, his mind, it's all corrupted by sin. Our wills are unable to choose good, Paul tells us. There is none righteous, not even one. How do you explain that? No one has ever been righteous, save the Lord Jesus Christ. Not even one. Well, it's for this reason. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's a question of ability. Underlying Greek words there, cannot and cannot, are questions of ability. What is man able to do? Does he possess in himself the freedom and ability to choose good and to do it? The scripture says no. But what about all of these humanitarian efforts of these not good things? Once again, we have to understand that in order to truly obey God, we must love God first. Any obedience to God's law that is not performed out of a heart of love for Him is performed out of a heart of love for oneself. And that is hypocrisy. And so, we cannot please God. And finally, men do not seek for God. There is no one who understands. No one out there is seeking for God. There just aren't any people seeking for God. And I think we probably can add on their own, no one seeks for God on their own. Of course, God brings men to Christ. But on our own, we are so depraved, we are so blinded by sin, that people aren't even on a journey towards God. Instead, they are on a journey led by their evil passions. And here we're getting into the question, not of our actions, not of our conscience, not of our mind, not of our understanding, not of our hands, our physical bodies being tainted by sin. Here we're getting into the question of our own desires. What do you want? Our desires as, as human beings are evil. We once lived in the passions of our flesh. We lived to carry out the desires of the body and the mind. And those desires were evil. They led us astray from God. 
our wanter, our lover, our desirer, our affections are broken. They are misdirected because of sin. Our desires then are directed only towards evil. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy. That's a word of great desire. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's not that man does evil dispassionately. It's not that he's completely passive in this. He wants to do it. He runs to evil. This is what the scripture says about us. This leads us to our next point then. Humanity sins not only because we are corrupt in our nature, but because we want it to be that way. We are willing slaves of sin. We choose to sin every day, and that's actually the way that we prefer that it was. There is no such thing as a reluctant rebel against God's will. As though somehow he's constrained into sin and he really doesn't want to sin. We are all sinners not merely by birth. We are sinners by choice. Ephesians, or sorry, Romans chapter 6 gives us an understanding of this. We know, Paul says, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Human beings, before coming to Christ, are slaves of sin. Now, you think of a slave. Does he do what he does because he wants to do what he does? No, slaves do what they do because they are made to do what they do. And yet, in man's case, he is both a slave to sin, but he is also a willing slave to sin, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Did we want to sin? Of course we wanted to sin. We were enslaved to sin, and we were okay with that. We were cheering on our own slavery to sin. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. We ourselves once were foolish, disobedient, led astray. I love the way this is put. We are slaves to various passions and pleasures. We are slaves to the very things we want to do. We pass our days in malice and envy. We hate others and we are hated by one another. And this is why Romans 1.32 says, They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do those things, but they give approval to those who practice them. People sit and enjoy sin on TV. They even pop popcorn to eat along with their enjoyment of sin. Why is this? Is it because somehow we just are constrained in our nature and we don't want to sin and yet we do? Or is it because we love sin and we want to do it? We run headlong with greediness, every kind of evil. So man is not only a rebel by nature, but he is a willing slave of sin. And because of this, God is highly offended. What is God's response to human rebellion? It is that mankind exists under God's judgment. His wrath burns against us. 
His sentence against humanity has been handed down. Humanity has been consigned to condemnation, the death sentence. The wages of sin is death. And this is what Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All of it lies under God's wrath. And God is not primarily, this is a really important point to catch here. God is not primarily incensed and wrathful against us because we harm his fellow creatures. God is not primarily upset because there is murder and one of those people that he made in the image of God has been killed. He's not upset primarily because we are destroying his world. God's anger is primarily concerned with his own honor and praise as God of all. That that honor and praise has been trampled underfoot by mankind who insists on running the show themselves. We have told God that the universe will function best with us at the center, and God is deeply disturbed by that response. The universe that he created for his own pleasure has been hijacked by human beings intent on pleasing themselves, not God. And God will not let that injustice stand. It is not right that there should be a world. It is not right that there should be a world where God is not at the center. That is not right. And God is angry that mankind insists that the world be like that. And this judgment that he responds to us with hurries us inexorably toward the scaffold. We live under the death penalty. Death is not natural then to the human condition. God did not create man to die. In the beginning, there was no death. Death comes as a penalty for sin. It is penal. And we die because we have sinned. This is what Genesis 2.17 says. But of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. In the day you eat, you shall surely die. Ezekiel 18, verse 4. The soul who sins shall die. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. Death is the penalty for our sin. It is God's way of putting an end to a universe in which man insists that God is not worthy to be at the center. This is God's judgment against our sin. In Romans 1.32, we know, rightly so, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. How then can man escape the judgment of God? Or are we eternally consigned to his wrath? The fifth thing we need to notice here about man as a rebel against God is that man is unable to reconcile himself to God. We cannot overcome our alienation from God. Why is that? The first reason is because the very thing that alienated us from God in the first place, human sin, we are not able to change that. We are not able to begin living a course of righteousness at any point in our lives on our own. The scripture says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all, even our righteous deeds, are like a polluted garment. Sorry. 
And we've got that out of order again, yes. Even our righteous deeds, Isaiah 64, 6, are like a polluted deed. Can any man then determine that on a given day from this point forward, he will obey the commandments of God? He will put God at the center of the universe. He will submit himself to God's authority. Can any man do this? This is what got us into the mess in the first place. And there is nothing we can do to set that right. Man is unable to please God. And that's what we saw already earlier in Romans chapter 8. Those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. But, but the problem actually is deeper than that. Because the scriptures teach us that man, well, let me just click through these here, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So man is unable to please God and therefore to reconcile himself to God. But secondly, man is unable to come to Christ on his own. This is what the scriptures teach. The men and women that we see walking around out there, we proclaim the gospel to them. And if it were all up to them, they would not come. They are unable to, the scripture teaches. Look with me at John 6.35, and we just want to notice something here about what Christ is saying in the words that he uses. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We understand what it means to believe in Christ. What does it mean to come to him? Does it mean anything different than believe? Whoever comes to Christ will not hunger. Whoever believes in him will not thirst. When Christ speaks about coming to him, he's talking about men coming to him in faith. And he satisfies their souls. And that's why what Christ says in the same sermon just a few verses later is very significant to us. Jesus says to those Pharisees, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. On our own, our state is such that we cannot even come to Christ apart from God's enabling grace. No one is able to come unless the Father and that's why Paul can say in Romans 3.11 that no one's seeking for God. They're not on a journey towards him. No human being gets up in the morning and says, I think I'm going to go towards God today. If he does, it is because the Father is drawing him. And that is how God overcomes our sinful condition. He is at work. And that means this, any remedy for our sinful condition has got to be God's work. And God's work alone. Man can contribute nothing to this. We say that we are saved by grace alone. By the gift of God alone. Human beings do not contribute works. Human beings contribute nothing to our salvation. It is all in Christ Jesus. It is a gift to fallen rebels who deserve just the opposite of what we have in Christ Jesus. And so a man, existing in God's world, is a creature of God's making. He's a rebel against God's authority. He's created in God's image as male and female, in righteousness, holiness, and goodness. He's created for a relationship with God of love and trust, and he's created accountable to God. 
And yet man has rejected God's authority. He is a rebel by nature. He is a willing slave to sin. He is under God's judgment. And he is unable to reconcile himself to God. And this is why we need a Savior. A Savior who is strong. Because we are very weak because of our sin. Let's pray and then we will sing briefly about that. Lord, thank you for giving us the scriptures that we might know ourselves. We look at these things, Lord, and in many ways they seem so wrong. We look out at our world, a world of seemingly nice people who seem like their intention is to do good, right things. We look at sinners who come to Christ. We think of those sinners as able to come, possessing in themselves the power to make themselves right with you. And yet, Lord, your word comes along and paints a very different picture. tells us about the things that we do not see behind the scenes. It tells us about your wrath. It tells us about our weakness, our powerlessness, our depravity, and our sin. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to humble ourselves before these things. As fallen human beings, our natural inclination is to rise up against them and to reject what you say about us. We want to retain for ourselves the thought that we are good people. We want to think of ourselves as, as able and powerful and, and able to do what you require of us. Able to come, able to make amends, able to make ourselves right with you. Lord, would you humble us under these truths. You've given them to us. You've shown us your great and mighty hand in our own weakness. In order, when we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, you might give us grace. Thank you, Lord, for the effect that these truths have in our heart, a redemptive effect. They humble us that we might then receive your grace. And Lord, as we sing about that now and consider what others have written about our own state, as fallen human beings before you, in our need for the Savior, we pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts. Cause us to look up to him with gratitude and love, with joy that you have given us such a Savior. And Lord, help us this week to accurately identify ourselves in your, world, in your world. Help us to believe these things about ourselves. And may they become the platform on which our humility before you grows. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Well, let's take our hymnal, and uh, we have been working for the last couple of weeks on learning a song that was written by Isaac Watts about 300 years ago, and uh, it's, uh, it actually helps us to put into words our state before God and our need for a Savior. How sad, I'm just going to read to you uh, the words, and then we'll sing it briefly, and then we will be done. Okay? Pause.